The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Donald Trump, wartime president. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, January 9th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Whenever January 2nd falls on a weekday, as it did this year, that's usually the day the holiday season is officially over and the wheels of big business and government start turning again. And so it was from his golf resort in West Palm Beach, Florida, on January 2nd that former reality TV host Donald John Trump pushed the nation toward war with Iran. Suddenly in the new year, it was a very different world than the one we knew before the holiday break. The wheels of government and big business had begun to wind down in the countdown to Hanukkah and Christmas Eve. The world we knew then was one in which the evidence against an impeached president had become even more overwhelming. As fate would have it, even more damaging evidence came to light during the holidays, which most of us missed because it was the holidays. Still, more evidence came. So when the wheels all started turning again on January 2nd, Donald John Trump was in a box a very tight place politically. The poll numbers were more favorable for his removal from office and less favorable for his re-election. Trump was in a box, tweeting angrily well into the holidays, mostly about Nancy Pelosi. He couldn't seem to get her out of his head. He tweeted at her eight times in five days. He was angry at Pelosi about his impeachment and angrier still about her refusal to send the articles of that impeachment to the Senate for a trial until she knows whether it will be a fair trial. With Senate Leader Mitch McConnell's opposition to allow witnesses, a fair trial seems unlikely. Democrats say that if McConnell succeeds in blocking testimony, it would amount to a cover-up of the president's alleged crimes. But making matters worse for Trump, a crack appeared in his once-unanimous support among Senate Republicans. Alaska's moderate Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski used the word disturbed in describing McConnell's plan to work closely with Trump's defense lawyers during a trial in which McConnell would swear to be a fair juror while allowing no witnesses. I was disturbed when I heard that, said Murkowski. She described Mitch McConnell as working hand-in-glove with Trump and said, quote, it is wrong to prejudge. Senator Susan Collins of Maine said she's open to witnesses but made it clear she's not willing to fight for them. On Tuesday, Mitch McConnell announced he had the votes to start the trial without witnesses, but with the option to call witnesses after both sides had made their opening statements and after senators submit any questions they have in writing. Witness testimony is important in this particular impeachment trial because Trump's White House has stonewalled the House inquiry, refusing to provide a single document and blocking most witnesses. In another possible blow to the president, one of the witnesses Democrats and some Republicans want to hear is former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who says he is now willing to testify in the Senate trial if he's subpoenaed. Meanwhile, cracks had formed in Trump's Senate support. If Republicans like Collins and Murkowski and Mitt Romney keep peeling away, there might be enough votes to give Democrats the 51 votes they need to make significant turns in the trial which includes calling witnesses. Democrats only need four Republican votes to get their way in a Senate trial, and there are ten possibles. The three I just mentioned, plus Tennessee's Lamar Alexander, Ben Sass of Nebraska, Colorado's Cory Gardner, Mike Enzi of Wyoming, Iowa's Joni Erst, Arizona's Martha McSally, and Pat Roberts of Kansas. 
Impeachment has not only not been forgotten, it continues to progress. New evidence continues to come to light, indicating that Nancy Pelosi was correct in holding back the articles of impeachment until she knows what rules Senate Republicans will try to impose on the trial. Heading into the new year, Donald John Trump was in a box, and there was only one way to get out of it. When Lyndon Baines Johnson was president, his popularity went up after he sent American troops to Vietnam. Never mind that when the war became extremely unpopular, Johnson decided to end his political career. When President Bush I announced Operation Desert Storm in Iraq, his popularity went up sharply, but he too was a one-term president. But then, when George W. Bush was president, his popularity saw a sharp increase, and in the wake of a direct attack on the United States, it carried him to re-election. Third time's a charm. Trump's hoping the fourth time is, too. One thing is apparent. Historically, in times of war, a majority of voters rally around the commander-in-chief. What is not apparent is whether this president's confrontation with Iran will help or further doom this president. More than one in four adults in this country believe Trump is the world leader who poses the greatest threat to world peace. And that was before his airstrikes in Iraq, before assassinating Iran's top military official in an act of war. Before those attacks, 27% of Americans saw Trump as the biggest threat to world peace, with North Korea's Kim Jong-un a safe five points behind Trump at 22%. 13% see China's Xi Jinping as the biggest threat, nearly tied with Russia's Vladimir Putin, who's the greatest threat to 15% of Americans. Here are the top four. Donald Trump followed by Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, and Xi Jinping. Nearly twice as many of us consider Trump the greatest threat, then think that of Putin. And Trump shares a statistical neighborhood with Kim Jong-un. This opinion is true across every generation. A plurality of millennials, 28%, of boomers, 27%, of Gen Xers, 25%, and of Gen Zers, 26%. More than one in four adult Americans of all ages see Donald John Trump as the leader who poses the greatest threat to world peace. It's not just here. In Germany, a poll finds 56% view Vladimir Putin as the biggest threat to world security, but 8% more than that, 64% assign that infamy to Donald John Trump. And that was before the airstrikes against Iran inside Iraq. It was also just before Trump's act of war with Iran that we learned that U.S. military morale had been damaged by the president's pardons of suspected or convicted war criminals, most especially over his orders that Eddie Gallagher remain in the Navy SEALs despite Gallagher's atrocities. While Trump was whining and dining Gallagher at Mar-a-Lago last week, the New York Times got hold of video testimony from members of Gallagher's SEAL Team 7. Freaking evil said Special Operator First Class Craig Miller, who broke down in tears upon those words in his testimony. He was the first to blow the whistle on his team leader. Miller and others on the SEAL team, led by Gallagher, describe him as unhinged and bloodthirsty, a toxic psychopath. They said his motivation was, quote, to kill anybody he can. Gallagher's men swore under oath that he had purposely exposed them to enemy fire, believing that casualties in his own platoon would get him a silver star. Several SEAL team members said they spent many days trying to, quote, save civilians from Eddie after he'd shot four women. Gallagher's justification, he'd fired warning shots. 
These SEAL team members had at great personal risk violated the code of silence that members of that elite corps normally protect. But these particular men felt they had a higher calling to report Gallagher's violation of their duty to fight for the U.S. honorably. And even as their stories went public in the final days of 2019, Eddie Gallagher was lapping up the luxury of the president's private golf club. It quickly became clear to the men and women in our armed services what sort of behavior gets awarded under this president. It became clear that whistleblowing would not remove a dangerous soldier or a dangerous commander, certainly not under a dangerous commander-in-chief. Military morale took a hit, and at a very bad time. Pointing her finger at Trump, Nancy Pelosi in that famous photograph remembers saying, With you, all roads lead to Russia. Air Force One had just landed in Florida for the holidays when he retweeted a news item he felt could defend him against impeachment. It was an Associated Press story headlined, Putin says Trump's impeachment is far-fetched. While being impeached for pressing a foreign government to help his campaign, Trump was quoting Vladimir Putin again. Endorsed by Putin, what's not to be proud of? So he retweeted it. That evening, Russia state media also made clear its support for the impeached American president. It also rebroadcasted parts of an interview between the U.S. conservative TV network One America News and the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. We learned just days before Christmas that Giuliani's effort to get dirt on Joe Biden was getting help from Putin operative Dimitro Firtash. Over the last two decades, Firtash used Russian money to buy natural gas facilities inside Ukraine and to help elect a Putin-backed candidate as president of Ukraine. And then Vice President Joe Biden pushed reforms that put Firtash and others like him out of business. Firtash was arrested on criminal charges, and it was a member of Putin's inner circle who posted the $155 million bail. Lev Parnas, of Lev and Igor fame, says Giuliani urged them to ask for help from this very corrupt Dimitro Firtash in getting dirt on Biden. And Lev and Igor persuaded Firtash to hire a couple of lawyers who are Giuliani associates and frequent guests on Fox News. The Washington Post sums it up this way, quote, One of Mr. Putin's foremost agents of influence and his lawyer have delivered more than $2 million to associates of Mr. Giuliani, who have worked with him to discredit Mr. Trump's leading Democratic opponent in the 2020 election, end quote. Lev Parnas has now been granted permission by a judge to share with the House Intelligence Committee the documents and phone data seized by federal prosecutors after they arrested him in October. The documents include a complete readout of Lev's iPhone. Parnas himself could become a sworn witness for an additional article of impeachment. There may be, in fact, more congressional charges against Trump. Uh, House of Representatives General Counsel Doug Letter said so in court on Friday as he argued for the release of documents from the Mueller investigation. There have been two articles of impeachment that have been acted upon, said one of the judges, adding, are you here to say there may be a third? There might, yeah, absolutely, the House lawyer responded. The House Judiciary Committee has not finished its work on impeachment, asked the judge, nor has the Intelligence Committee replied the House lawyer. It was in the wee hours a week ago Sunday when we learned the president had been on the phone again with Vladimir Putin. 
It was Trump's first phone call with another world leader since July when he had that now infamous conversation with Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky. And CNN reports there were significantly fewer people on the line listening. This time, there are fewer copies of the transcript. And because this president is like no other, we did not learn of this call from the White House as we normally would. No, once again, we learned of the Trump-Putin phone call from the Kremlin. This time, we heard it from the White House more than 24 hours after we'd learned of the call from the Kremlin, which put that news on Russian TV. Putin was calling to thank Trump for the U.S. intelligence that helped thwart a terror attack. The White House statement more than a day later echoed that and added a bit about discussions of arms control and the condition of U.S.-Russia relations. The call also came after reports that Trump's views on Ukraine had been shaped, at least in part, by Vladimir Putin. Trump told an aide it was Vladimir Putin who'd told him that Ukraine had worked with Democrats to try to keep him from being elected. Putin told me, said the president. Two weeks after the inauguration, Putin claimed that Ukrainian officials had helped the Clinton campaign. And it was at about that time that Trump was telling his top aides that Ukraine had tried to stop him from winning. They are all corrupt. They are all terrible people, he said. Trump got more adamant about that narrative right after his private meeting with Putin at the G20 on July 7th, 2017. That's the one in which Trump snatched the meeting notes taken by his interpreter and swore her to secrecy. The Washington Post reports Trump's senior aides were reportedly troubled by the president's Ukraine conspiracy theory, but that Trump assured them it was true because, quote, Putin told me. Trump's Republican defenders on Capitol Hill took up the cause, demanding investigations of Ukrainian interference. U.S. intelligence, including the FBI, say there is no evidence of this. Trump's now imprisoned campaign chair, Paul Manafort, was spreading the Ukraine theory as far back as 2016. He'd gotten it from his employee, Konstantin Kalimnik, who has close ties to Russian intelligence. We also learned from a whistleblower, a different one, that Deutsche Bank's loans to Donald Trump had been underwritten by the Russian bank VTB. We learned this from rock musician Val Brocksmith, who is sharing the thousands of bank documents and memos and emails he inherited from his late father. Val's father, William Brocksmith, was an executive at Deutsche Bank and took his own life six years ago. Son Val has just provided proof that Trump's loans were ultimately backed by Russia, with you, as Pelosi had put it, all roads lead to Russia. Where we'd left things heading into the holidays, the president had been impeached for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Ordinarily, the next step would be to pass those two articles of impeachment onto the Senate, which would then hold a trial. But as you know well, these are not ordinary times. In these times, the Republican-held Senate has made clear it will work closely with Trump's defense lawyers, that it will not be impartial, and that it'll all be over in a couple of weeks. In short, a trial at this moment would not be fair, so far as we know. The articles passed by the full U.S. House of Representatives still stand. The impeachment still stands. It just hasn't gone to trial. So removal from office isn't on the table. Yet. The House has not yet voted to select which or how many prosecutors to send to the Senate trial because House Democrats don't yet know the rules. In modern impeachments, we've seen a bipartisan set of rules, but Mitch McConnell is taking the final say this time. He says Democrats in the House have had their chance. 
The last we heard from him prior to the holiday break, he was reacting to news that some Democrats wanted to keep holding back the articles of impeachment. Fine with me, declared McConnell during a speech on the Senate floor. In that same 30-minute speech, McConnell called the case for impeachment weak and the result of shoddy work by Democrats. Also in that speech, McConnell vowed that Senate Republicans would, quote, put this right, meaning to quickly acquit Donald John Trump so he and they could claim exoneration. In its impeachment inquiry, the House Intelligence Committee issued 71 subpoenas and requests for information about the Ukraine affair. The Trump administration refused to cooperate with all 71. The Center for Public Integrity filed a Freedom of Information lawsuit to get to some of those documents, and it won the lawsuit. It was just before the holiday break when we saw the release of newly unredacted emails connected to the subject of Trump's impeachment, the withholding of military aid to Ukraine, while asking for a favor, though. We learned that the order to withhold the congressionally mandated money for Ukraine so it could better defend itself from Russia came directly from Trump, and that the order was given 90 minutes after Trump's phone call with President Zelensky and that there was an attempted cover-up. The revelations began with the court-ordered release of 146 pages of very heavily redacted White House emails. We got a narrative, though, of the 84 days between Trump's first inquiry about withholding the money and its ultimate release in September, only after the whistleblower report went public and the House officially launched its impeachment inquiry. The emails reveal shock at the Pentagon and division among top officials in the Trump White House. Two budget office staffers had resigned in protest. There were email discussions about the legality of it all and reminders that the money meant for Ukraine's defense would soon vanish, as does all unspent money at the end of the government's fiscal year on September 30th. An email from the White House calls the hold, quote, a POTUS-level decision. We learned that Defense Secretary Mark Esper, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and then National Security Advisor John Bolton had joined forces to try to talk Trump out of withholding the money. They failed, and John Bolton was out of a job. The emails reveal a discussion between the White House Budget Office and the Pentagon about the hold. They reveal that Mick Mulvaney, who serves as both the head of the Budget Office and as Trump's acting chief of staff, wrote to ask an aide, did we ever find out about the money for Ukraine and whether we can hold it back? The aide wrote back that it was possible, but that Mulvaney should expect Congress to, quote, come unhinged over this and that withholding the Ukraine money would fuel the talk that Trump is pro-Russia. In the end, they decided to call it a temporary hold to make it a bit less illegal or at least to make it sound better. The emails also reveal a White House attempt to keep the hold secret. Given the sensitive nature, wrote budget official Michael Duffy, I appreciate your keeping that information closely held. The Pentagon wrote back there was a risk of losing the Ukraine money if it weren't handed over quickly. Fifty-five days overdue already on September 11th, Ukraine's money was finally released. It was Duffy who also wrote that there was a, quote, clear direction from POTUS to hold, end quote. House Democrats had subpoenaed Duffy for the impeachment hearings, but he refused to show. He's on their short list of witnesses for a Senate trial, should there ever be one. The evidence against Trump continued to mount over the holidays, starting with those emails, as heavily redacted as they had previously been, and even with the White House still withholding about another 20 emails. And those now public emails increased the pressure on Mitch McConnell to allow witnesses 
who clearly need to be heard. It would, however, more likely make McConnell even more determined not to allow any witnesses. Because when it comes to defense witnesses, he has none. The pressure for witness testimony increased on Monday when Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, said he would be willing to testify for the Senate impeachment trial if he were subpoenaed. But by Tuesday, McConnell was saying he'd buck modern precedent and drop the rules for a trial without input from Democrats. McConnell was, after all, on the side of the president, not the impartial juror he's about to be sworn to be. But a number of Republicans want to hear from John Bolton, and certainly all Democrats do. I'd like to hear what he has to say, said Republican Mitt Romney, forming another tiny crack in the Trump administration's stone wall. Experts have said that if you could only have one witness in the impeachment trial of Donald John Trump, it would have to be Bolton. No one person would have more knowledge of the Ukraine scandal for which Trump has been impeached than John Bolton. A Senate impeachment trial without him would be a sham. Bolton, you'll recall, called the holding of Ukraine money for political reasons a drug deal in which he wanted no part. Bolton may know more about this than anyone. Will we hear from him? Before his book comes out, the White House reportedly scrambled to respond to news that Bolton was willing to talk, Trump claiming executive privilege and saying Bolton, quote, knows nothing about what transpired in Ukraine. Stay tuned. Often forgotten in the case against Donald Trump is his vice president, Mike Pence. He shouldn't be. Newly released Pentagon memos reveal that Pence had a key role in securing from Ukraine's president what President Trump wanted. Pence was on the phone with Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky on September 1st, just days after the money for Ukraine to defend itself against Russia had been withheld. And House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff is keenly interested in the nuts and bolts of that discussion with Pence. Just one problem, Pence is playing keep away with the answers. On November 6th, Pence said he had, quote, no objections at all to releasing the call record. Then... He said his office was, quote, working with the White House counsel about that. Less than two weeks later, on November 19th, Pence's office said those call notes had become classified. So, too, then, was the testimony of Pence aide Jennifer Williams, who had listened in on the call and testified about it under oath. A December 11th letter from Pence's office to Adam Schiff read in part, quote, The vice president never raised the Biden's barisma or crowd strike in his conversations with President Zelensky. Schiff wrote back, the committee never asserted that, nor asked whether you specifically had used those words. Why was Pence denying something of which he had not been accused or even asked? Schiff calls the letter from Pence's office deeply troubling. Schiff wrote back that withholding the requested evidence, quote, raises profound questions about your knowledge of the president's scheme to solicit Ukraine's interference in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Schiff is also accusing Pence of lying in that December 11th letter. Quoting Schiff, If the submission from Williams accurately describes your conversation with Zelensky, it would mean the representation in your office's December 11th letter may be purposefully misleading. Schiff is now offering Pence a chance to reconsider his decision to keep hiding his part in the Ukraine affair. This week, we learned that federal prosecutors have asked the judge in the Mike Flynn case to give him a six-month prison sentence. 
Prosecutors had originally asked for no jail time because Flynn had been so darn cooperative in the Mueller probe. But the judge was having none of it, telling Flynn he'd arguably sold out his own country and asking prosecutors why they hadn't charged Flynn with treason. The judge would seem inclined to give a sentence harsher than six months, and it will be up to the judge. Prosecutors changed their recommendation from zero to six months, but only to six months because even though he'd stopped cooperating, Flynn had been extremely valuable to their case. The judge has so far remained focused on the seriousness of the crime. Flynn originally pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI and the Mueller probe about Flynn conducting U.S. foreign policy in the presidential transition period while Obama was still president. As the president's mood swings between jubilation that the impeachment will motivate his supporters to reelect him and the anger that pushes out hundreds of vicious name-calling tweets, we can find good reason for both emotions. On one hand, impeachment has apparently fired up the Trump voter base. Trump's current campaign manager, the one who's not in prison, excitedly announced that the campaign has raised $3 million in one day, the same day the House passed its impeachment resolution. That, said Brad Pascal, brought that month's fundraising total to $19 million. $19 million in just one month. Since then, Trump's 2020 campaign war chest has continued to grow. It's also worth noting the campaign has spent most of its fundraising ad dollars not in swing states, but in states with wealthy donors, Texas and California. On the other hand, impeachment has also taken a toll on Trump's re-election chances, as witnessed in the crumbling approval numbers and the growing number of Americans who want him removed from office. And it's taken a toll on the man to whom popularity is so important. In his most recent Friday night rant, Trump did a lot of retweeting. He passed along memes from pro-Trump anti-Democrat groups, some with suspicious-looking Twitter accounts and a couple from QAnon. On the day after Christmas, one of his retweets included the name of the alleged whistleblower whose report forced the release of the Ukraine money and launched the House impeachment inquiry. Even though the law requires the president protect whistleblowers, Trump had exposed to millions someone who allegedly at great personal and professional risk reported wrongdoing in government. Trump has known the name for a month, and to everyone's amazement, he had restrained himself from tweeting or blurting it out to reporters. But on the night after Christmas, Trump could not contain himself any longer, and he retweeted the name of the alleged whistleblower. His rage would continue into the weekend. Donald John Trump was in a box over the holidays heading into the new year. It's important to know that context in order to have a clear perspective on Trump's active war against Iran. There's already been a whirlwind of consequences since Trump ordered the drone strike to assassinate Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. At first, the Pentagon said Soleimani was planning a series of attacks, but then that's what Soleimani's always done. As commander of both military and intelligence for Iran, Soleimani planned every major Iranian operation over the past 20 years. He was also extremely popular in Iran and the region and the second most powerful person in Iran's government, their mastermind of mischief. So Trump at first claimed Soleimani was plotting an eminent attack. That word eminent is important because it's a president's only legal justification for significant military action without consulting Congress, and Trump did no consulting. But then the official explanation of the assassination changed. Later, when the first explanation was shot down for a lack of evidence, 
The story changed to, it is for Suleimani's past actions, not for what he supposedly planned eminently. Trump and Mike Pompeo characterized Suleimani as a terrorist who had to be killed for our national security. But killing another country's general as part of a policy agenda is a much different matter. Trump's been focused on Iran, especially since a December attack that killed an American contractor. Relations have been tense, though, ever since Trump pulled the U.S. out of the multinational Iran nuclear deal and hit Iran with more than a thousand sanctions. The sanctions have had such a devastating effect on their economy, the Iranian people were rising up against their own government. Until Trump had their beloved general killed, the general they believed was keeping them safe from Israel, the U.S., and ISIS. That launched a new round of Iranian mischief in the Middle East. Recently, Trump had responded with U.S. missile strikes. Things kept escalating until they appeared to come to a head this week. Bob Seska will have more on this shortly. After the killing of Soleimani, Iran also pulled out of the nuclear deal, saying one of the consequences would be Iran's unlimited capacity for nuclear production and enrichment, at least for now. Soleimani, in particular, had been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans during the Iraq War. Like Trump, other presidents were given opportunities to kill Soleimani, but they took a pass to avoid setting off a bloody war with the nation of Iran. Trump threw that caution to the wind, and apparently without a strategy, without a plan for the many possible consequences. Early Friday morning in Baghdad, 5 p.m. Thursday, Mar-a-Lago time, American missiles were fired from an MQ-9 Reaper drone into a convoy that had just left the airport with Soleimani inside. Here at home, most stock prices fell while oil prices and defense industry stocks went up. Northrop Grumman stock jumped nearly 5.5%. The legal ramifications were immediately called into question. Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy agreed that Soleimani was an enemy of the U.S., but added, did America just assassinate without congressional authorization the second most powerful person in Iran knowingly setting off a massive regional war? That certainly appeared to be the case, and a government already burdened with constitutional clashes between the executive and legislative branches. Middle East expert Robert Malley, who served in the Obama administration, told the New York Times, From Iran's perspective, it's hard to imagine a more deliberately provocative act, and it's hard to imagine Iran will not retaliate in a highly aggressive manner. Whether President Trump intended it or not, said Malley, it is, for all practical purposes, a declaration of war. In Iran, the foreign minister called the assassination an act of international terrorism and an extremely dangerous and foolish escalation. And then threats of revenge. The U.S. and its allies braced for it. Israel closed some of its most popular tourist sites, including a ski resort, and its armed forces were placed on alert. Germany ordered its personnel in Iraq to stay on base and withdrew from military operations. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was reportedly angry that Trump had not informed allies, including Britain, that the drone strike on Soleimani was about to occur so they could prepare and keep their own people safe. The French government issued a statement saying, we are waking up in a more dangerous world. Canada called for de-escalation. Britain, France, Germany, and even Saudi Arabia called on the U.S. and Iran for restraint. The U.N. Secretary General said the world cannot afford another war in the Middle East. The U.S. State Department advised American civilians in Iraq to get out quickly, if air by possible, because of, quote, heightened tensions. 
Little did the State Department expect that just 48 hours later, the Iraqi parliament would vote to expel all U.S. military personnel from within its borders, pushing the U.S. out of an important strategic location for keeping Iran in check and for fighting ISIS. Trump responded by threatening Iraq as well as Iran. He warned Iraq against the expulsion, demanding Iraq reimburse the U.S. for the multi-billion dollar airbase we have there. Quoting Trump, we're not leaving unless they pay us back. And Trump warned Iraq that it would face, quote, sanctions like they've never seen before, ever. Iraq is of crucial strategic importance to the U.S., especially now. This is not the time to get thrown out of Iraq. But Iraq was also now a problem for Trump on top of Iran and on top of impeachment. The day before, U.S.-led NATO forces suspended their fight against ISIS to focus on protecting American troops in the region from Iran's retaliation and sent in an additional 3,500 American troops. ISIS is expected to resurge as the U.S. loses its footing in Iraq. Security had also been stepped up in the U.S. military and by big city police departments across the country. Iranian families were being detained at the U.S. border because, as one agent told one family, this is a bad time to be an Iranian. Border agents are prohibited from secondary screenings just because of their national origin, but that's exactly what happened, what Homeland Security did on Saturday as the U.S. braced for Iranian revenge. New York's governor sent the National Guard to New York City's airports. A former CIA director predicted, quote, there will be dead Americans, dead civilian Americans as a result of this. Possibly, he added, within the next few days. This was the level of tension. Then and now, Democrats are demanding that Defense Secretary Mark Esper testify for Congress about the killing of Qasem Soleimani. And today they will vote on a war powers resolution to limit to 30 days the amount of time the president can take military action against Iran without getting approval from Congress. Quoting Democrat Tim Kaine of the Armed Services Committee, we owe it to our service members to have a debate and vote about whether it's in our national interest to engage in another unnecessary war in the Middle East. Senator Bernie Sanders and a freshman member of the House are introducing legislation that would ban funding a war with Iran. Quoting Sanders, a war with Iran could cost countless lives and trillions more dollars. At least two Republican senators, Rand Paul and Utah's Mike Lee, say they will vote with Democrats on the War Powers Bill after a White House briefing they called lame, in which they say they were told not to worry about whether Congress is consulted about acts of war. Mike Lee was furious afterward, calling it the worst military briefing he'd ever seen in his nine years in Congress. The Pentagon had presented Trump with an array of options for responding to Soleimani's latest blows against the U.S., which included an attack on our embassy in Baghdad. Pentagon officials were reportedly stunned when he chose the most extreme response, the one other administrations had avoided because it could lead to all-out war with Iran. Since 9-11, even the most extreme options have been presented to presidents to make the other options look more reasonable. Trump, however, chose the extreme option. Quoting a former CIA officer, it's like hitting a hornet's nest with a baseball bat. You don't do it unless you're ready to go to war with the hornets. It didn't appear Trump had a strategy except to continue to escalate tensions with more threats against Iran. He threatened to commit war crimes if Iran retaliated. 
threatening to bomb 52 cultural sites in Iran, one for each of the Americans Iran took hostage in 1979. Those sites would be, quoting Trump's all-caps tweet, hit very fast and very hard. Bombing cultural sites that are not being used as military facilities violates the Geneva Convention and the U.S.'s own military code. It targets civilians. An attack on cultural sites doesn't just attack the culture of a given country. It attacks the world's culture. It is a crime against humanity. Trump also threatened a disproportionate response to Iranian retaliation that kills any American. A disproportionate response is also an international war crime. When questioned about his threats against cultural sites, Trump doubled down, promising to do what terrorists do, to do what we have condemned ISIS for doing. An Iranian official called Trump a terrorist in a suit. Defense Secretary Mark Esper later told reporters this would not happen. We will follow the laws of armed conflict, he said. By Tuesday afternoon, Trump finally backed down, telling reporters, if that's what the law is, I like to obey the law. But Trump made it clear he doesn't like the law that he had at first vowed to break. They blow up our people, and then we have to be very gentle with their cultural institutions. But at first, no one knew who to believe, the president or the defense secretary. The fact that that question even came up is proof of the chaos unleashed by Trump's order to kill a top leader in a sovereign foreign country. And when it comes to the chaos of this operation, that wasn't the half of it. There was that letter, that strange letter from the Pentagon to the government of Iraq saying that the U.S. respects, quote, your sovereign decision to order our departure and that American troops would be repositioned to peacefully exit Iraq. The letter was to be signed by Marine Corps Brigadier General William H. Seely III. It was confirmed as real by a U.S. military official. The letter is real. And when that letter leaked, the headlines, including my own, declared that the U.S. was preparing to withdraw from Iraq. Such a move would be a victory for Iraq and a devastating blow to American efforts there to keep Iran and ISIS in check. Hours later, Defense Secretary Mark Esper insisted the U.S. is not pulling out of Iraq. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said the letter was, quote, a draft. It was a mistake. It was unsigned. It should not have been released, end quote. So the U.S. either is or isn't bombing cultural sites and is or isn't pulling out of Iraq. No clear plan, no clear communications, chaos. By calling the letter an honest mistake, General Milley was revealing the chaos in the Trump White House and at a decimated Pentagon. Mistakes, no matter how honest, can have devastating consequences in war, which is thought to be the Pentagon's expertise. But the Defense Department has changed in the Trump administration, and especially in recent weeks and months, it's gotten smaller. The exodus began on December 5th when Carrie Bingen, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense Intelligence, announced her resignation. She was the second highest ranking intelligence official at the Pentagon. The next resignation came on December 12th with the departure of the Pentagon's top official on Asia policy, Randall Shriver. The next day, Jimmy Stewart, the Pentagon official in charge of personnel and readiness, resigned. Who knew you'd need one of those less than a month later? 
On December 17th, the head of the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency announced his resignation. Stephen Walker drove the development of the long-range anti-ship missile and developed it in half the usual time for such an undertaking. He's gone now, getting out of government and into private industry. The next day, Tina Kaidenau, who'd been with the State Department for years and just moved over to the Pentagon in 2018, she's now gone from her job as Senior Advisor for International Cooperation. This week, the Defense Secretary's Chief of Staff gave his 30 days notice. Eric Chuning, the number two man at the Pentagon, is now leaving. And although Chuning will be replaced by Jen Stewart, who's worked for both the Joint Chiefs and the House Armed Services Committee, but replacements have not been named for all the others. And there have been other untimely departures. The ambassador to Afghanistan, John Bass, has left his post. National Security Council official Richard Goldberg, one of the key figures in the Trump administration's confrontational approach to Iran, has also now left the building. Goldberg had been appointed by former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who was just as hostile to Iran, but left the White House after the withholding of aid to Ukraine. When Jim Mattis was Secretary of Defense, the president was never given the most extreme option for fear he might actually take it. Jim Mattis is long gone. All of the adults have left the room. Now, it's just Trump and those who agree with him, or say they do. Iran isn't strong enough to take on the U.S. military in a full-scale war, but drones and precision missile guidance have made it far more effective. Mostly, though, Iran's been focused on what's called asymmetrical warfare. Iran has relied on a network of regional militias, sleeper cells, and undercover operatives whose sole purpose is to carry out attacks on behalf of Iran that cannot be traced directly to Iran. Some of these operatives may already be in the U.S., Iran buys sophisticated weapons for these groups and trains them to fight. Soleimani was responsible for that, and it still exists even without him. He's also the reason Iran's gotten adept at computer mischief. Iran's already poked around in the U.S. power grid. Right after the assassination of Soleimani, a group of Iranian hackers got into the website of a little-known U.S. government agency, the Federal Depository Library Program. But Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, said Tuesday that this time there would be no question that the attacks would clearly come from the official Iranian government, not from its proxies. A top security official in Iran said Tuesday morning that his government had already drawn up 13 retaliation scenarios and would use more than one of them. Listing specific American military outposts, the official said the retaliation would be an historical nightmare for the United States. Iran's supreme leader, however, says that unlike Trump, it would obey international law and target only military installations. And Iran said its response would be proportionate, again, unlike the disproportionate response that Trump had threatened. But Iran's proxy militias could still retaliate and may out of loyalty. Iran's moderate president added to the war talk, saying, never threaten the Iranian nation. Not since World War II had the U.S. targeted and killed a military leader from another country. When Trump ordered the Soleimani killing, he appeared to break his own promise to keep the U.S. out of drawn-out wars in the Middle East. He took out Soleimani without the advice of Congress and, although it's not legally required, without consent. Congress was, except for Lindsey Graham and perhaps a few others, kept in the dark until after this war-starting step had been taken. 
And Trump took that step against or without the advice of experts. Trump's national security team is now a shadow of its former self, with so many members having left the administration either voluntarily or with help. Since before the election, Trump has broadcast his disgust for the U.S. intelligence community, the CIA, the FBI, and so on. When the intelligence community declared in unison that Russia had interfered with the 2016 election on Trump's behalf, Trump was furious and repeatedly blamed intelligence for the faulty conclusion that Iraq Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Hussein had no such weapons, but that was the pretext from the Bush administration used to justify W's war in Iraq. Now, Trump and his officials say Soleimani's killing was justified because U.S. intelligence reported that he was about to carry out a series of attacks. Eminent, said Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. There is no evidence that's the case. And even if there was a plot, could it have been thwarted in some other way? Was it necessary to provoke Iran by killing its second highest ranking official? As with Bush's WMDs of 17 years ago, there is no public evidence of Soleimani's alleged eminent plans. And the Trump administration is now trusting the intelligence it once disparaged, making sure we know that it was U.S. intelligence that said Soleimani had a deadly plan that had to be stopped. Without a shred of evidence. Misinformation is one of the ways the Trump administration has tried to sell to the American public that its provocation of Iran was not only justified, it was urgent. Here's where Vice President Mike Pence reappears. In a series of tweets, Pence claimed that Soleimani, quote, assisted in the clandestine travel to Afghanistan of 10 of the 12 terrorists who carried out the September 11 terrorist attacks. First of all, there were 19 9-11 terrorists, not 12. Second, none of them were Iranian, nor were any of them agents of Soleimani. The subsequent investigation showed that Iran was never involved in 9-11, as Pence was claiming. Fifteen of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. The rest were from the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Lebanon. None were from Iran, as Pence was claiming. Pence was wrong or lying. There were not ten Iranians attacking us on 9-11. Pence's press secretary later backed up his claim without offering any evidence. As Congress now also demands answers on Trump's active war against Iran, it appeared that it would be Mike Pence who would deliver the official answer. Reuters reported that Pence would speak this coming Monday to lay out the administration's policy on Iran. Seventeen years ago, Pence was on the Senate floor declaring that weapons of mass destruction had been found in Iraq. That was not true, but would be used to justify Bush's Iraq war. Now, the White House was saying Pence would tell us Monday why we killed a top official from another country within the borders of a third country. Last night, Pence's speech explaining all this was canceled after what a lot of senators were calling the worst military briefing they'd ever seen. So to recap... The consequences of Trump's order to assassinate a foreign government official on foreign soil without consulting Congress or our allies and against expert advice included Iran threatening to respond in kind to the killing of one of its most revered government officials and Trump threatening to react disproportionately, the fight against ISIS in Iraq suspended, Iraqi lawmakers voting to expel American troops, Iran announcing the restart of its nuclear development program, U.S. allies distancing themselves, We were on the brink of war while the Pentagon is decimated and in chaos. And then 
after three days of mourning the death of their beloved military intelligence official, Iran struck back. Before Iran fired 22 ballistic missiles toward Americans at two Iraqi air bases, Iran notified Iraq of what was coming. As Iran knew it would, Iraq notified its ally the U.S., and then the U.S. notified its allies who also have troops in the region. That's perhaps the main reason there were no U.S. or Iraqi casualties or even injuries when those Iranian missiles struck. Iran gave the world a heads up. Tuesday evening, after all the tension and high-level confusion, Americans and Iraqis held their collective breaths as they waited to see if this was the beginning of all-out war. To almost everyone's surprise, it wasn't. Iran had intentionally avoided American and Iraqi casualties responding to Soleimani's killing not with force, but with a message of force. The Iraqi people were told that more than 50 Americans had been killed and that the U.S. had backed down. Iraqis were told that Soleimani's death had been avenged, and Iraq promised bigger trouble if the U.S. shot back. Thankfully, Trump did not back up his threats of a disproportionate response to the Iranian attack. Instead, after learning there were no casualties, Trump was ready to back off his threats. A tense evening came to an end with the president telling us all is well and that he'd have more to say the next morning. Good night, everyone. After making the news network TV anchors pad for nearly a half hour, Trump finally emerged before the cameras to address the nation about this whole Iran thing, once again slurring his words and sniffing between sentences. Before the usual formal greetings, Trump's first words were that Iran would not have nuclear weapons so long as he is president. It was only after that that Trump announced there had, in fact, been no U.S. or Iraqi casualties in the Tuesday night missile attack from Iran and that Iran appeared to be standing down. In the course of these remarks that have kept fact-checkers very busy, Trump railed against the Iran nuclear deal, the one from which he pulled the U.S., setting off the chain of events that led up to that Tuesday night attack. In his latest attack on the nuclear deal, signed by the Obama White House, Trump repeated the demonstrably false claim that the U.S. had paid Iran billions of dollars to get that deal. The U.S. had long owed Iran that money and never paid it, the money to which Trump falsely referred, including the payback plus interest. In order to get Iran to stop developing nuclear weapons technology, the U.S. paid Iran the money it was owed. Conservatives love to point out that it was paid in cash by the Obama administration. Stacks of cash shrink-wrapped on warehouse pallets and loaded onto American aircraft bound for Iran. What conservatives often don't point out is that the money owed had to be in cash because of the sanctions the U.S. had placed on Iran that prohibited the money from being transferred between banks. We do not need Middle East oil, declared Trump, after saying more than once that the U.S. should have seized control of Iraq's oil fields during the Gulf War. And while the U.S. has become less dependent on oil from the Middle East, we still buy a lot of it. The oil remark came as Trump touted the economy during a presidential address about a brush with war in which American lives could have been lost. There are 5,000 Americans in Iraq and another 10,000 in neighboring countries. But as a Republican donor told the Washington Post, the common wisdom on Trump is that he's incompetent. Iran is his opportunity to disprove that. 
He continued, if Iran doesn't become a disaster and the economy is good, Trump is untouchable in November. Trump has, in effect, bet his presidency on being able to contain an unstable Iran. It seems more than coincidental that Trump would mention the U.S. economy while crowing about a safe end to this week's war scare that he created. At that moment, it was more of a campaign speech than the presidential address it was billed to be. In his address, Trump vowed to continue the crushing sanctions against Iran and add more. Trump said all this surrounded by the nation's military leaders, flanked by Secretary of Defense and Vice President Pence. What looked to be Trump's war was over. For now, we think. The night of the attack, Lindsey Graham was with Sean Hannity on Fox News, both of them urging Trump to respond to the Iranian attacks forcefully. Earlier that evening, Graham told reporters that if Iran struck back, it would be, quote, a massive retaliation. You kill an American, you're going to be the first one we come after, said Graham. The second highest ranking member of the Senate, Dick Durbin of Illinois, urged his colleagues to reassert Congress's congressional authority to declare war, calling it more important than ever. These are the things that happened on Trump's watch as he launched a foreign policy decision from his golf resort in Florida on January 2nd. The Washington Post reports that Trump has spent more than three out of every 10 days of his presidency at one of his resorts at taxpayer expense, a third of the time. I'm not going to have time to play golf, lamented Trump during the campaign, because I'm going to be working for you. He added a believe me for emphasis. It was from Mar-a-Lago that Trump ordered the assassination of a foreign official, hoping it would get him out of that damned box. With more details on how and why we just endured this short national nightmare and with razor-sharp commentary about it, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. All of this began when Donald Trump reneged on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iran Deal. Having never actually read or fully comprehended the agreement, Trump based his opinion of the deal mostly on the bogus Fox News Channel hyperpartisan interpretation of it, which, no surprise, was resoundingly negative. The only thing Trump can manage to say about the specifics of the deal is that he dislikes the 15-year term. Perhaps it's the brain worms, but Trump doesn't get that a 15-year term is better than a zero-year term, which is what Trump has landed on. But the 15-year thing is just a ridiculously flimsy excuse. Trump withdrew from the deal as part of his crusade to erase the entire Barack Obama legacy, piece by piece. If that's indeed the case, and there's no reason to believe otherwise, Trump started this high-stakes game with Iran simply because Trump hates Obama. In other words, we ended up in a limited shooting war with Iran, leading to the brink of combat, due to Trump's obsessive insecurities, his stunted approach to foreign policy, rather than in pursuit of a legitimate regional goal. And then a militia group attacked a base in Kirkuk. Trump responded by killing 24 Iranians in a retaliatory strike, leading to the storming of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. The embassy fiasco led to Trump authorizing the drone assassination of Qasem Soleimani outside the Baghdad airport, which culminated in Iran launching ballistic missiles at military bases in Iraq, killing no one. Oh, and somewhere in the mix, Iran withdrew from the JCPOA, and Iraq voted to boot our soldiers out of the country so much winning. Throughout these events, Trump simply recycled his fire and fury berserker-in-chief approach with North Korea 
and applied it to Iran. The madman theory, as I discussed in my column in Salon this week, not realizing the DPRK and Iran are two very different nations with very different political, societal, and military dispositions. The point of the madman approach, as we witnessed with Trump and Kim Jong-un, is to convince Iranian leadership that Trump is an unpredictable maniac not a stretch there, who's ready to throw down potentially with nuclear weapons. Unlike with North Korea, however, Iran struck back anyway. With the exception of actual attacks in the mix this time, the Iran debacle is playing out exactly the way it did with North Korea. Following the missile launches late Tuesday, Trump, as of midday Wednesday, blinked, announcing that he intends no further escalation for now. Clearly, one or more of his advisors explained to him that the lack of casualties by Iranian missiles was intentionally designed as an escape hatch for Trump, a way to avoid a full-scale war, a chance for Trump to save face, to step away from the precipice before it's too late. Instead of a mass casualty attack, Iran did the least it could do without doing nothing. Only now, Trump will attempt to ham-fistedly negotiate a new deal with Iran, not unlike his unprecedented series of meetings with Kim Jong-un. And we can safely assume that whatever deal, if any, he's able to squeeze out of Iran will be far worse than the Obama administration's original JCPOA. How could it not be? Trump isn't known for his honor or integrity. No one trusts him to operate on the level, and everyone knows he's a con artist. So why would Iranian negotiators concede to Trump more than they conceded to Obama? Furthermore, Trump will likely attempt, perhaps in futility, to meet with Iranian leadership without any preconditions, giving away everything and potentially getting nothing in return. Again, there's no reason to think this will play out as it did with Kim. In fact, it's already far more ungainly and dangerous this time. I didn't think that was possible, yet here we are. Yes, Trump managed to avoid war by leading us to the very brink of it. While ultimately avoiding it, though, I don't think these events ought to be considered a win for America, and here's why. The most positive outcome we can hope for is a considerably worse relationship with Iran than we had before Trump. It's not even a lateral move. It's a giant step backward. The very best case scenario in all of this is an agreement that's far weaker than the old Iran deal at best, and we only needed to bungle our way into a military showdown against a well-equipped nation that's larger and more powerful than Iraq. Good job, Biff. You sure showed him who's boss. If you happen to be a student of international relations, take notes about all this under the heading, He's Doing It Wrong. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. We learned on Christmas Day that the U.S. Cyber Command was developing cyber tools to use against top Russian officials and oligarchs if the Kremlin tries to interfere in the 2020 election. Cyber Command, U.S. Cyber Command, is preparing to respond by getting into the computers of not Vladimir Putin himself, but all the people immediately around him. Those individuals would be warned that their personal data would be exposed if they didn't stop. It's not seen as a solution, rather part of a solution to be combined with sanctions, especially sanctions backed by our allies, if we still have any. Cybercom has already been given broad powers to make all but the most sensitive strategic decisions, 
On Election Day 2018, the U.S. Cyber Command took Russian trolls offline and kept them off for the two days that followed the election. And without having to get permission, Cybercom showed the Russian trolls that they had each been personally identified. The U.S. used email and pop-ups to warn the trolls to stop. Russia has already placed implants in the U.S. electrical grid. Quoting a law professor, they're showing they have the ability to hurt you if things escalate. Cyber attacks from Russia remain a threat in 2020. Add to that dramatic failures in electronic voting systems, such as the one that threatened an election in the big battleground state of Pennsylvania. North Carolina and Florida had that kind of trouble in 2016. In 2018, there were voting equipment failures in Georgia. Last month, the House added another $425 million to the $1.5 trillion being spent on election security and trouble-free voting machines this year. Senate Democrats tried to get it through the Senate, but they were blocked by Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell, hence the nickname. It was just two months ago that U.S. intelligence, including the CIA and the FBI, issued a joint statement warning that Russia and other countries intended to meddle in or even sabotage the 2020 elections through cyber attacks and social media propaganda. Also, Iran, where hackers have targeted several candidates, including Trump. Microsoft had recorded 2,700 attempts by Iranian hackers in late summer, apparently in response to Trump stepping up the already harsh sanctions on Iran. Russian hackers had targeted both Democrats and Republicans in 2016 to further divide Americans. Quoting a cybersecurity executive, the volume and intensity of these attacks will only increase as the election cycle advances toward Election Day. With election officials across the country facing a record turnout 10 months from now, what could possibly go wrong? As recently as December 20th, Facebook took down more than 600 accounts linked to a pro-Trump conspiracy website which had used photos and profiles that had been generated by artificial intelligence. Let's be careful out there. The drone mystery, squirrel, and a Florida New Year in the final segment after this. The number of words in my report this week, well over 11,000. The words come from me, but the news comes from a variety of reliable sources that charge rightly for their services. There are computer expenses, software, server fees, websites, and high-speed internet, and the care and feeding of professional broadcast quality equipment to make the show listenable. This newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up or ad blockers to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. The FAA and dozens of other agencies are investigating the drones crisscrossing their way across parts of Colorado and Nebraska. Law enforcement phones have been ringing. Colorado Senator Cory Gardner got involved, demanding answers. After weeks of sightings and investigations, we still don't know who owns the drones. They've been observed flying in a grid pattern. It's unnerving. The maker of the Ring smart cameras admitted on December 30th that the Personal information of millions of its customers had been exposed to the public. 
These customers include the owners of Alexa devices that include a camera. Amazon says hackers had apparently gained access to one family's account with stolen login credentials. Ring maker Wise Labs signed out all of its customers and asked them to sign back in with new credentials. This week, the United Methodist Church voted to split into two separate denominations, one okay with gay marriage, the other unwilling to condone it. The church had already been bitterly divided for years over this issue. The bickering stops here, even at the cost of breaking up the third largest denomination in the United States. The Amazon rainforest is at a tipping point, according to two highly respected scientists, one at George Mason University, the other in Sao Paulo, Brazil. They warn that great swaths of that crucial rainforest are on track to be treeless. The Amazon considered the lungs of the planet. Instead, the Amazon would belch billions of tons of carbon and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And the fact that the melting Arctic is also giving off more greenhouse gases makes the threat even more severe, indicating we have much less time to act than we thought. Just this week, the Trump administration announced it will order federal agencies to stop taking into account climate change when planning major infrastructure projects. The new rules gut the National Environmental Policy Act passed a half century ago. Ditching the environmental rules will speed up construction of highways, oil and gas leases, and pipelines. The rules change even strikes protections for endangered species. Along the Virginia shores of Chesapeake Bay, a major bridge and tunnel expansion threatens the nesting grounds of 25,000 birds. 2019 was the hottest, driest year on record for Australia. The inevitable bushfires have destroyed more than 2,000 homes and killed more than two dozen people. It's created some of the worst pollution in the world, and Australia continues to be the world's biggest exporter of climate-changing coal. In science news that's not nearly as important, scientists have found a way to make brown chocolate shiny and sparkly. They say that rotated in the light, a rainbow of colors shimmer in much the same way they do on a chameleon. Already pitching the sparkly chocolate to the big chocolate makers, the scientists are in where else but Switzerland. There were passings and passages over the holidays. New York Radio's Don Imus was known for his humor and his charity for kids with cancer, but he was also known as a curmudgeon who friends described as racist, misogynistic, and homophobic. Don Imus died in Texas at age 79. We learned this morning that Buck Henry, a comic writer and actor who hosted Saturday Night Live 10 times, has died at age 89. Buck Henry is, however, best known for writing the TV series Get Smart and for writing the screenplay for the movie The Graduate. This is the one with the woman who wrote the theme to TV's Friends, Allie Willis. She has died at age 72. But she was so much more than just the composer of the Friends theme. She also wrote hit songs for Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Pet Shop Boys, and the Pointer Sisters. She won Grammys for her soundtrack work on Beverly Hills Cop and The Color Purple. Willis called the theme from Friends the whitest song I ever wrote. Composer Lee Mendelssohn died on Christmas Day, an ironic exit for the man who wrote Christmas Time is Here for TV's A Charlie Brown Christmas, which he also produced, along with the animated Garfield cartoons. Lee Mendelssohn died at 86 from congestive heart failure after a long battle with lung cancer. 
Broadway composer Jerry Herman passed at age 88. He wrote Hello, Dolly! and La Cage Faux. As a child, Herman's piano teachers walked away, telling his mom that if they tried to train him, it would ruin his talent. Jerry Herman was known to friends as an optimist. Actress Sue Lyon, the too young blonde in the controversial 1962 Stanley Kubrick film Lolita, died two days after Christmas. She had also been in poor health for some time, leaving us at age 77. Around here, we're mourning the passing of the museum in Washington, D.C., a museum dedicated to the work of journalists in this country from its founding to the present. The $450 million seven-story museum with 15 galleries and 15 theaters has run into debt on real estate between the White House and the Capitol. The exhibits included a steel door from the Watergate break-in, a piece of the Berlin Wall, the 360-foot antenna mast that fell with the World Trade Center on 9-11, Pulitzer Prize-winning photography, and a memorial to the more than 2,300 journalists who died in the course of their reporting. The museum closed at the end of 2019, reflecting the demise of the newspaper industry, the country's exponentially grown distrust of the media, and the rise of fake news. Newsrooms across the country lost nearly 4,000 journalists just in 2019, most of them covering local, your local news. More than 2,100 newspapers have shut down in the past 15 years, and about 1,000 others, like the Wichita Eagle, have become ghost papers with skeleton staffs. Marijuana shops in Illinois were closing just six days into the new year because at just six days into legal recreational marijuana, they had run out of inventory. More than $3 million worth of THC products were sold in Illinois' 55 dispensaries just on the first day, matching the previous record set by Oregon. In North Attleboro, Massachusetts, a substitute teacher has been fired for leading a discussion about marijuana while smoking it in front of the students. The principal who fired the teacher called the incident unprecedented and unfortunate. The issue on Christmas Eve in Wausau, Wisconsin was snowballs. Since snowball fights were outlawed there in 1962, only criminals had snowballs. Snowballs were lumped into the same category as rocks on the list of harmful items that can't be thrown in Wausau. The town earned some notoriety when its ban on snowball fights went public. City police posted a video showing themselves in a snowball fight to prove that the ordinance isn't being enforced. The city council will consider decriminalizing snowball fights at a meeting next month. It was in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, that a woman reported seeing a UPS package being stolen from a neighbor's front porch by the Amazon driver who was there to deliver a couple of packages at that same address that afternoon. Wilkes-Barre police say they will file criminal charges against that Amazon driver just as soon as they figure out which one it was. And as we clear out the seasonal aisle, it was on Christmas night that a High Point, North Carolina couple's long winter nap was disturbed by the stirring of a creature. They called 911. Police responded to find a robotic vacuum doing some late-night house cleaning. The couple had gotten the robotic vacuum on Christmas Eve and named it Harry. The creature stirring at a pizza hut in Las Cruces, New Mexico, was a 19-year-old suspected robber who was trying to break through the front door. He didn't succeed, and police identified the suspect from the DNA evidence he'd left behind. The face print he left on the front door's glass. 
Speaking of screw-ups, an Albuquerque woman who was supposed to use her daughter's phone to record her future son-in-law's proposal had accidentally reversed the phone's camera lens and got all the audio, but the video was a selfie of mom. The mom admits she's not very good at photography. The new trash cans for Pritchard, Alabama will not be repainted again. The barrels were supposed to read Mobile County, but the freshly painted barrels came back emblazoned with the words Mobile Country. That's fine with most of the citizens. Quoting one, really doesn't matter as long as they pick up the garbage. Our highway spill of the week involves tumbleweeds. In West Richland, Washington, people were trapped in their cars at midnight on New Year's Eve and for four hours afterward stopped in their tracks by a pile of tumbleweeds 15 feet deep. No one was injured in the tumbleweed incident. It took about 10 hours, though, to clear the road. They used snowplows. Before Florida's notoriety, all the weird stories used to come from California. Some still do. In Riverside, a man was arrested after stuffing frozen shrimp down his pants. After three trips to a Vaughn supermarket, the man had stolen 30 bags of shrimp, valued at over $500. But we will start the new year right with the words, A Florida Man. This one has been sentenced to prison for stealing a house, a $220,000 house. 45-year-old Stanley Livingston of Polk County will serve three and a half years after snatching the deed at a mortgage company closing ceremony without signing the loan papers. Now they know why he asked if they could put off the signing until the end of the closing meeting. While the giant New Year's Eve ball was dropping in New York's Times Square, they were dropping all kinds of things at the citywide celebrations in Key West, Florida. Instead of a shiny lighted ball, the Key West celebrations dropped. A drag queen, who goes by the name Sushi, lowered into a, the giant replica of a woman's high-heeled shoe along Duval Street. At a resort on Harbor Street, the giant replica of a key lime wedge lowered into the giant replica of a margarita glass. Outside the sloppy Joe's bar where Hemingway used to hang, Conk Republic revelers watched the dropping of a giant replica of a conch shell. They lowered a normal-sized human dressed as a flight attendant at the First Flight Restaurant, the birthplace of the now-defunct Pan Am World Airline. A tall ship in the harbor lowered a woman dressed as, quote, a pirate wench. Happy New Year from the home office, and thank you, Florida. He ran across the house and through the dining room. He got into the toilet and then into the daughter's room. It was a squirrel that had apparently tumbled down the chimney while a suburban Atlanta family was on vacation, and the squirrel was trying to get back outside. The Drees family will now have to replace nearly every window in their house after the squirrel chewed on all the wooden frames and poked tiny holes in the glass. He pooped on their beds and on the couch and on the counters and on the floors. He chewed the wood on the door and the indoor shutters, and he apparently flicked on the faucet when he jumped from the counter to the kitchen window. The water was running when the family returned, making them think there was an intruder. There was, just not the kind they were expecting. The squirrel did $15,000 damage to the Drees' home. The young couple says they will have to cover the damage out of their own pockets because the insurance company told them it doesn't cover rodent damage. The company says that is standard. Check your policy. 
and you'll probably find a bird and rodent exclusion in your own homeowner's policy. Raccoon damage, however, is covered by the Drees policy, and young Mr. Drees says he wishes a raccoon had fallen down the chimney instead. And finally, Padfoot got caught trying to scale the prison wall. In Britain, a tuxedo cat named Padfoot had gotten stuck and had to be rescued from the razor wire fence around prison Haverig after being spotted by prisoners and guards there. Padfoot was rescued with only minor injuries and was returned to his owners on Christmas Eve. Also on that night, firefighters in South Burlington, Vermont, rescued a cat from a tree. That's news because they also had to rescue the owner who had also gotten stuck in the tree. Firefighters recommend waiting 24 hours and then calling a tree company, not the fire department. Quoting the firefighter, cats do tend to come down on their own. And in Manteca, California, meanwhile, firefighters rescued a German shepherd dog from a tree and the cat it had chased up there. No, wait, actually, the cat came down on its own. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.